welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. So several weeks ago, very many weeks ago, before I started renovating my house and moving my family in, I began a new series in the book of James with the hope that our study that we're currently going through with my father in Ephesians and this study in James will work hand in hand to urge us as a church to rejoice in all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, and then in response to, rejo- to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. As a brief reminder, last time we looked at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In those, past, in those verses, we discovered that James is writing to Jewish Christians who had been scattered throughout the known world, fleeing persecution in Palestine. A lot of what James writes is practical in nature, like what we see in the book of Proverbs or in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes it's difficult to say exactly why James jumps from one concept to the next. But God's purpose in breathing out his words through James is clear. All believers who are confronted with this letter are urged to live out your faith in a time and place where the things of this world at our war with the church, and seeking to infiltrate it. In verses 1 through 18, James flips the world upside down, calling the family of God to have joy in trials, because trials have a purpose. They are refining and maturing our faith. He finishes this section with these words in verse 18. Of the Father's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It was his will to save us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is his plan for his glory, his purpose. It is with this truth in mind that we jump into verses 19 through 26 with the call to be doers of the word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer asking him to do a marvelous work in our church through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can gather this morning. Lord, I thank you as that song we just sang says that you have chosen to look on Christ and to pardon me. That's the only reason I'm able to stand here this morning and open your word. God, I pray for our church, for every one of us that are here this morning, that you would knit us together in the unity of the the Spirit, in the Spirit, that this body would be one, that you would help us to cast off any bitterness, jealousy, any strife. Lord, instead, that we would be a lighthouse to the world around us for what the love of Christ looks like practically lived out in this day. I thank you for your word, Lord, that it is complete and perfect, that I don't have to overstate it or understate it. I pray that you would help me to be faithful to your word this morning, that nothing that I say would be 
that cause confusion or cloudiness in someone's mind or heart, but instead that it would drive us on to clarity of thought and joy in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the text this morning is primarily focused on this concept of hearing and doing. And as I thought about this, I realized that we all struggle with this on a daily basis. Sometimes it's just because of the busyness of life. Um, I was talking with my wife about this before the service, and I was thinking back to a couple of weeks ago when my wife asked me, can you, can you grab that plate of food and cover it and put it in the fridge, please? And sure enough, I was busy with something else. I was thinking about something, probably had picked up my phone to look at something. And sure enough, I picked up the plate, wrapped it nicely, carried it over to the microwave, and put it inside. I can't remember if I started it or not, but it was definitely in the microwave. Five minutes later, you would have seen me sneaking back into the kitchen as if nothing had happened and just correcting my mistake as I realized what I had done. Sometimes we struggle with hearing and doing simply because of our own passionate nature about something or our conviction about what we think is important. I was reminding about that, reminded about that this morning when I was trying to get my daughters ready for church, you know, that, that kind of struggle to get kids ready and get them into the car and get them fed and all that, those things. And my daughters were very passionate and convicted about the necessity to wear pink pants rather than the blue ones. That I had picked out. And it was very hard for them to hear and to do what their daddy was telling them because of their own passion and conviction about what they, they knew was right in their heart. It's with this in mind that we're going to jump straight into verses 19 through 21, where we are all admonished to receive the word with meekness. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James begins in verse 19 with an imperative. This is a command to know this, hear this, realize this, my brothers and sisters in Christ. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James often uses the analogy of trees and their fruit, seeds and growth, good and bad soil. And here we see that the anger of man will not produce that which God calls good. Instead, we will end up with a harvest of of wickedness. The book of Proverbs says that the anger of man produces folly, strife, a snare, transgression. And in Ephesians 4, we read that that man's anger produces an opportunity for the devil. It is possible that a Christian could experience anger at sin without themselves committing sin. Ephesians 4.26 gives this as a possibility when it says, Be angry and do not sin. But it is very difficult for us to act and to speak in our anger without the flesh taking over. That's why the very next phrase in Ephesians 4 is a warning to not let the sun go down on your anger, because letting your anger grow and fester would produce an opportunity for the devil. 
Proverbs 17, 27 says, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. The scriptures are very clear and consistent on this point. When we are angry, when we are wrathful, sin is crouching at the door, ready for us to burst forth in righteous indignation, only to stumble over our flesh and sin through a rash word or deed. This warning against anger is applicable to every aspect of life, but in the context of verse 19, highlighting the word of truth, and in verse 21, after this verse, speaking about the implanted word, it becomes clear that James is specifically admonishing us about how we receive the words of God. What is our heart posture to the word of God? Verse 19 says, let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. Are we quick to hear? Is it our desire to listen intently, closely, full of a desire to hear and obey the words of God? Are we slow to speak? Are we careful with God's words? After all, they are the very words of God. Are we slow to anger? Something I heard over and over again at my sending church back in the States was that the word of God is constantly poking us in our idols. Nobody likes being poked in the eye, but sometimes it's even more painful to be poked in the idol of our heart. Do we become angry and dismissive when the preacher names our favorite sin? Do I become angry and steamroll another believer when he interprets Scripture differently than I do. James admonishes us to be slow to anger, because even in the midst of our most righteous indignation, we must remember that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Instead, as James says in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceful open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Verse 21 begins with therefore. James is pointing back to what we just, what we just learned about how it was the Father's will to save us through the gospel in verse 18. And, how, and about how the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It says in verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Here we are called to put away or cast off filthiness and rampant wickedness as if as we would cast off filthy clothes. This imagery is reminiscent of Ephesians 4, where Paul says to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. James also calls us to put on something. He says to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save uh, your souls. Here, meekness is contrasted with the quick anger from verses 19 through 20. 
that was slow to hear and quick to speak. Meekness is the opposite of anger. But remember, meekness is not weakness, as our culture keeps telling us. Meekness was portrayed portrayed for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one through whom all things were created. He is the one who humbled himself and became a servant for the sake of his bride. Meekness is strength, great strength under control. Even if we've been a Christian a long time, maybe went to Bible college, read read Christian books, or sat under brilliant teachers, we must never become puffed up. We must always come to the word of God with meekness, quick to hear, slow to speak, ready to receive the words of God, not looking for proof texts that will validate my current way of life but earnestly desiring that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, would poke me in the idols of my heart so that I can be released from the shackles of my own flesh. James goes back to the analogy of seeds and growth when he calls the word the implanted word. This imagery goes back to the teaching of Jesus in the parable of the sower. In Mark 4, we read that Jesus was teaching the multitude and he taught them this parable. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Jesus went on to explain to his disciples that the seed represents the word of God. And the different types of soil represent the different heart conditions of man. The first three types of soil represent hearts, uh, represent hearts that um, reject the word of God in order to pursue earthly things. But the final type of soil represents those who receive the word with meekness and faith and are born again. Make no mistake, in this parable, Jesus is showing us how we can know if the word of God has taken root in a person's heart, saving them, changing them, driving them on to bear good fruit. If there is no fruit, then there is no spiritual life. But James is drawing on this parable to challenge believers. Why? If the seed, the word of God, is already implanted, If it has already taken root in our hearts, if we are already saved, then what could this parable teach us? James is challenging us to to prepare good soil in our hearts, to remain humble and meek, to not harden the soil of our hearts towards the word of God, so that the seed that is implanted in us can grow and increase 
and bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in abundance. We are called to diligently examine ourselves to ensure that day by day we remain on our knees in submission to the Word of God. One commentator put it this way, What James is suggesting by describing the Word in this way is that the Christian must not think he is done with the Word of God after it has saved him. The Word becomes a permanent, inseparable part of the Christian a commanding and guiding presence within him. The command to receive the implanted word, then, is not a command to be converted, but to accept its precepts as binding and to seek to live by them. Christians who have truly been born again demonstrate that the word has transformed them by their humble acceptance of the word as their authority and guide for life. Where do you stand before the words of God. Do I love his commandments? Do our actions and words reveal that we place the authority of God's word above the wisdom of man? James' final description of the word in this verse is that it is able to save your souls. James is speaking of believers those who are born again. But he clearly is referencing a future salvation. Here, James is pointing to our ultimate salvation in the day of judgment. The New Testament speaks of our salvation in three tenses, past, present, and future. Paul often uses this language in his letters to the churches. In Ephesians, he says, For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in Romans 5, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If you are born again, then the reality is that you were saved in the past. You are being saved today and you will be saved on the, on the day of final judgment. James is reminding us of the power that God has bestowed on his word through the Holy Spirit to be the saving testimony of his son. And that's why we are called to receive his word with meekness. In verses 19 through 21, James has called us to receive the word. But in verses 22 through 25, James flips over the coin and shows us the dual nature of a godly response to the word by calling us to be doers of the word. Let's read verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James does not want anyone to misunderstand what he means by receive the word. Because some could read verses 19 through 21, put down their Bibles, Sit back and say, I'm good. 
I listen. I don't speak about God's word. And I don't get angry about it. I have received the word of God. But if that is you, then James is saying you are deceiving yourselves. It is a deadly mistake to believe that those who are simply hearers of God's word will be saved. For Paul says in Romans 2 verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And we read the words of Jesus in Luke 11 verse 28, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So what are these passages getting at? Are they teaching a works-based salvation? No, God forbid. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In that passage, it becomes very clear A born-again believer is a workmanship of God, a masterpiece, a new creation in Christ Jesus designed for good works, designed to walk in this newness of life. And James is saying in verse 22 that if there is no evidence of this design in you, no evidence of these good works, then you are not his workmanship. And you are deceiving yourselves. In verse 23, James paints us a picture of what this looks like. He says that if anyone is simply a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. The mirror shows him his wayward bed hair, the splotch of dirt on his cheek, the rebellious patch of beard he is misshaving. But instead of responding to what he has been shown in the mirror, He walks away, unchanged, unmoved, immediately forgetting what he has seen. And then goes about his life, oblivious to his own true appearance, resentful toward anyone or anything that might point out his need. James is saying we are like this foolish man if we look into God's word with all its gracious instruction for life and godliness, but turn away unchanged, unmoved, immediately forgetting our own need, never picking up the razor of joy and discipline and cutting away the stubble, the remnants of the old man that so clings to us. James describes the the opposite of the foolish man this way. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. When we pause and look into the word of, into God's word, as one who stoops down to take a close look at the reflection in a pool of water, what is our response to the truth that is revealed there? As a comfort and encouragement to us, James intentionally becomes more descriptive of the word and calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty. Because Jews were very familiar with the concept of laws. 
There were over 600 Mosaic laws derived from the Old Testament that Jews were subject to. But even though James is a Jew writing to Jewish believers, he is not primarily referring to the Old Testament law in verse 25. Instead, he is referring to the perfect law, the law of liberty. This is the fulfilled law in Christ. And the gospel that has set us free, this is the complete revelation of God seen through the lens of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. No longer is the law a taskmaster that we can never fully please. Instead, Christ proclaims, I have fulfilled the law. Now go out, love God with your whole being, and love one another as I have loved you. James says that the one who perseveres, who keeps going, who doesn't turn back, who doesn't forget, but presses on in obedience to Christ, he will be blessed in his doing. This person is the one that will reap a bountiful harvest of righteousness. He is the one that will see spiritual fruit growing in his life, Because as you pursue after God with the grace he has given you today, he delights to give you even more grace to press on even harder after him tomorrow. James concludes this chapter with a summary and with a glimpse of the wisdom of God to come in the following chapters. Let's look now at verses 26 through 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What do these final two verses have for us? Why does James keep bringing up the topic of our speech? Why does he throw out there the word religion and then start talking about orphans and widows? As we heard before, James is a pastor. He has been leading the church in Jerusalem, a body of believers. But somehow, even with the liberty that Christ had purchased, even with the gospel implanted in them and the spirit of God convicting them of sin and righteousness, the church was still being set ablaze like a forest that is threatened to be burnt to the ground. What was causing this turmoil? Where did the blazing fire start? Chapter 3, verse 5 gives us insight into why James will repeatedly return to the topic of a Christian speech. Chapter 3, verse 5, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. My brothers and sisters, our words have the potential to burn and destroy, to tear down and to crush. And today with modern technology, our words have the potential to instantly start a fire in a home, at a Bible study, through WhatsApp, in a voice message. The list could go on and on. And James is saying that if we do not guard our words, if they are allowed to trample and burn others, 
then we are deceiving ourselves and our religiosity, our outward acts of worship are worthless. Instead of busying ourselves with worthless words, James calls us to be imitating our Lord and Savior, to be doers of the word. He first says to visit orphans and widows in their their affliction. In biblical times, an orphan and a widow represented the most vulnerable of society, especially if they did not have relatives to lift them up in their moment of need. The second thing James says is to keep yourself in stain from the world. These two commands echo Isaiah's words of warning to the people of Judah. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. It's called to put off unrighteousness and to put on Acts of mercy and compassion is a common theme of Scripture, but it reveals the desire of God for us. For Christ has redeemed us. We are His new creation designed for good works. We are designed to receive the word with meekness and then to go out and be doers of the word. In conclusion, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, holds a powerful reminder for us about the deceptiveness of our own hearts. Leading up to this story, David has made the greatest mistake of his life. He has taken another man's wife, and then to cover up his sin, he had the husband killed. David thinks his sin is covered. And that's where we pick up the story with the words of Nathan the prophet. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought and he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Can you see the deceptiveness of our own hearts in this story? I see it in me. This is David we're talking about. He knew the words of God and was used by God to even write many of those words. 
that even this man, a man who had previously been called a man after God's own heart, turned for a season from receiving the word of God with meekness and being a doer of those words. Instead, we see him as slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger. How can we guard ourselves against this type of self-deception? Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We can guard ourselves against self-deception by daily confessing our need for the, of the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer and through storing up his words in our heart. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much again for your word. How powerful it is, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing straight through to our hearts. Lord, I pray that this morning, if there be any sin clinging to our hearts, if we're loving anything more than you, Lord, would you amputate it from us? Would the Spirit of God show us our fault so that we can be clean, so that there would be nothing separating us from the joyous relationship that you want for us? Lord, this isn't just a duty. You have so much joy and happiness and fellowship and relationship planned for us. Lord, I pray that we would daily come to you in meekness, confessing our need of the Lord Jesus Christ daily, Admitting and realizing that we are so quick to deceive ourselves about our own righteousness before you. And that we would plant the word of God and take it daily, put it inside of our heart so that we might not sin against you. So that we can have this this relationship with you that is so much more filling than anything else that this world can ever offer us. We love you, Father. We ask that you would bless us this day and that we would go out of here changed. If even just a little bit, that we would be happy and joyful and praising our God this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God for his grace and the relationship that he has freely offered to us. May it drive us to good works. Let's stand and sing a final song together. Oh
Jesus. 